2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Stories on the page, on stage, and on screen are in today's lineup. There are numerous picture books with stories for young children reassuring them that they aren't alone. Many of those stories are told by the mother, rather than from a father's point of view. Daryl Tharley is an Atlanta educator who wrote his story, I Will Be Here, from the perspective of an African-American dad for his sons. We'll also hear about Aurora Theatre's new virtual production, of Barbara's Blue Diner, a comedy with country music storytelling at its heart. And to begin, a story on film about music transcending barriers.
1: This all began when I read about a librarian who started a music festival at the border between the United States and Mexico. He invited us to join him to sing,
3: perform, and dance. The librarian took us to Veracruz, Mexico, to meet the masters of this mystical tradition. This is not just a story. It's a
1: vision of a world full of hope, friendship, and love.
2: A new documentary by Kabir Segar attests to the unifying power of music. Fandango at the Wall Premiered on HBO and is an official selection of the Atlanta Film Festival. It will screen next Thursday. Segal is a prolific author as well as a multi Grammy winning music producer. This is his first film, and he is with us now via Zoom. Kabir Segal, welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. It feels like a great homecoming to be on your show. I listen regularly. Thank you for all that you do to shine the light on the creative people and the creative economy.
2: Well, I really appreciate your saying that and really feel quite honored that the likes of you is in our audience. This documentary is marvelous and its message is so very welcome now will you please tell us what is depicted in the story of fandango at the wall
3: yes yeah, so fandango at the wall is a feature music documentary that explores u.s mexico relations through mexican folk music which is known as son music and this film looks at the ideas of identity and immigration but it does it through the beautiful music of San Jorge music. So this is really a story of coming together, a music of jubilation. And we wanted to to say, you know, there's another story when it comes to Mexico and and the United States. It's not always a story of division and animosity and xenophobia. There's There's a 200 year history where there's shared borders and friendships and families. So our project, Fandango at the Wall, this film looks at how uh, we have shared music between our countries. And so it follows my friend Arturo O'Farrell, who's an incredible New York musician, multi-Grammy awarding musician. He and I travel to Veracruz, Mexico, to find the masters of this incredible mystical tradition, Son Horocho music, and then we recruit them essentially and ask them to join us at a festival, a music festival at the border wall between Tijuana and San Diego. And we play a concert with musicians on both sides of the border and we transform this object, which is meant to divide us into one that unites us.
2: It's magnificent. Now, Arturo O'Farrell is a revered musician, as you point out. He figures prominently on screen. And early on, he equates music with justice. What was Arturo O'Farrell's role in the development of the film?
3: Arturo and I were having dinner together. And we have probably worked on five albums together, produced his, his projects. We were thinking about what to do next, and he said, you know, I came across this article in the newspaper about a man, a librarian named Jorge Francisco Castillo, and he has created a festival at the San Diego border every year, and they orchestrate this cross-border Fandango. The festival is called Fandango Fronterizo, and I said to Arturo, this sounds like our next project. This was in 2016. And so then I started uh, calling, I said, Arturo, I'm going to go ahead and call this man. And so I started calling all of these different libraries in San Diego, trying to find this librarian. And I finally found him and I said, hello, my name is Kabir. I'm a music producer and musician. May I come to your festival? May we come to your festival, Arturo and I, and, uh, and learn about your festival? And he said, sure. And that's how the project began. And Arturo and I are the music directors of this project. So Arturo leads the Afro-Latin jazz orchestra in New York, and they tour around the world, or they used to, (laughs) pre-pandemic, and um, he really wanted to honor the San Herochi music, meet the incredible maestros of San Herochi music, but also, we wanted to perform a concert at the border wall that tears down borders within musicians. So what does that mean? There's not just physical walls there's walls that we create in our minds you know different types of music is often considered a border so on the project you're going to hear sanharocha music there's big band jazz music and it's all coming together it's we try to felt, we have musicians who play who come from the middle east who perform at the border wall with us we're agnostic to geography we're agnostic to music, musical tradition so the border wall concert was really conceived by Arturo he's an artistic genius to so say you know what Not only do we need to talk about justice um, through music, we need to demonstrate it by the music we play and the people who we include in our project. So Fandango at the Wall tears down borders. And I've just got to say one thing about justice within music. Sonorotri music is music that goes back 300 years. The song La Bamba, which many of us know, actually goes back hundreds of years. It's a protest song. And many times, you know, the artists are the ones expressing what they want to see in the world. They're characters in the movie that are using the lyrics to demand justice and uh, more equality. And so they're doing it in a way that appeals to your hearts and minds. And they're talking about things that are real, very real. So I encourage you to, to think about how music, you asked the question, how music and justice play a role. This project is all about. Showcasing how music can tear down borders and can also fill the mental walls that we create between ourselves.
2: Continuing on the topic of the style of Son Harocho, the music strikes me as sentimental in the best sense of that word. It is emotional and direct. The musicians speak in poetic metaphors. A younger musician describes an elder as he is the trunk and we are its roots. And then you introduce us to the various instruments, including a man who crafts some of the finest of those instruments. Kabir, what was your reaction when he spoke about Jimi Hendrix?
3: In our movie, Fandango at the Wall, there's a a character, Ramon Gutierrez, and he lives in a... A town in Veracruz, and you know, we asked about what are his, who are his musical heroes, and he cites Jimi Hendrix, and we were surprised to hear that because you don't, you wouldn't think about that, you wouldn't think that's would be one of his musical heroes. But I think what really spoke to Ramon about Jimi Hendrix was Hendrix's expression of freedom. And he says in the film he doesn't always hit the right note, but that doesn't matter. That's not the point is not hitting the right note. The point is expressing yourself and being true to yourself and being authentic. And it just shows that a musician living in a distant part, a remote part of Veracruz can be influenced by musicians in the United States and vice versa. We hope that um, artists, creative people who see this film, who are in Atlanta, who are in New York, who are all over the United States, will be influenced by the incredible, legendary Jarocho artists that they see from Veracruz, Mexico. We're all connected. Indeed.
2: What first appeared to me as flamenco dancing actually turns out to be something quite practical. What is the role of dance in the Jarocho ensembles?
3: The dancer is the drummer. And there's a historical reason for this. When Mexico was a Spanish colony, there were musicians playing on the drums. But the Spanish colonials, they banned drums. They banned drums because they thought it was an instrument that fomented protests. It was quote-unquote revolutionary music. And the patterns on the drums, they made their way onto... The dance board which is called the terima, it's a wooden platform that san hirotchi artists dance on and you can almost there's a there's a similarity between the pattern that the dancers dance on the tarima it's called the zapateado the dancers are doing the zapateado on the terima, and the drums that you might hear the drum patterns you might hear in other latin american countries so whenever you go to a fandango the most important thing is, who's bringing the tarima? Because you cannot start a Fandango without a tarima. And everyone then circles around the tarima, the dancers start dancing on the tarima, and that's when the guitar or the harana begins. So the ter- the dancing is the heartbeat. The dancing is the percussion of San jarocho music.
2: Writer and producer Kabir Sigal. We'll return with more about his new documentary, Fondango at the Wall, after a quick break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. We're back with producer and writer Kabir Segal. His new documentary, Fandango at the Wall, explores the multicultural tradition of son Jarocho music, culminating with a festival at the US-Mexico border. In the course of the film, we get to know these musicians intimately. You take us into their homes, We hear their concerns, and we see their families. And though everyone conveys their artistry effectively, I have to confess for having a favorite among those we meet, Kabir. Would you please talk about Fernando, the poet and versadora?
3: (laughs) Fernando is... um just a remarkable individual. He is a poet, and he is able to improvise decimas. These are poems that are about 10 lines long, and he can rhyme them at will. And he's able to convey such rich and vivid poetry in his music. So Fernando... Um, he lived in the mountains of Veracruz, and as someone who is trying to improve the lives of farmers and people who work in the lands, and he has a rich vocabulary, having worked, you know, in in Veracruz, and on the farm in the cooperatives, and throughout the film, we, you know, showcase individual artists but then we get to Fernando and that's when it gets real he starts talking about issues of justice and fairness and politics and society and as he says we demand justice through our verse through our poetry and this is how we express ourselves so he is the um I want people to hopefully see, I want people to see the film he is the bridge for the film between the music and the politics. And it's through his incredible artistry that we see the sophistication of how many, many artists are in the the Sonora tradition. You also see an expression of the middle class in Mexico, of the incredible brilliance of their music, incredible brilliance of how well-read they are, incredible brilliance of just, just their um, vivid imagination and artistry. So Fernando, is a uh, is a fan favorite from the people who've seen the film already
2: he is passionate about ancient history culture and the land though he equates country with colonialism and how that notion of country or in this case national encompasses all the ills of colonialism. How does what we learn in the film make us aware of the multiple cultural identities that go into being Mexican?
3: There's not one Mexican culture. It's not a monolithic culture. There's no one music that defines... Mexico, just in the same way that there's not one type of music that defines or represents the United States. There are actually many Mexicos within Mexico. There are many United States within the United States. And there are people in Mexico City, we were doing the post-production of the film in Mexico City because we wanted this to be a cross-cultural collaboration, who were unfamiliar with the San Jorocha tradition. San Hurocha music is one of the very few places in Mexico where you see the significant influence of Afro-Mexican, where slaves came on slave ships and landed, because Veracruz is a port city and port state. And so I hope when people watch the film, they'll see a a slice of Mexico that they may not be familiar with. They'll see how the middle class uh, copes with their situation, their lives, how they try to make music, how they discuss the violence that's happening around them, how they think about um, immigration. As Fernando says, people don't leave their country because they want to. Why do they want to go to a place so far away? They, They leave because they have to, because of the violence. But then there's also a conversation about, well, we also need to try and make it here in Mexico. So this is a very, Real conversation about immigration. And also you asked about kind of the where we come from. Fernando's poetry. You're right. He talks about how we're all Interrelated. What is the Mexican. Well, there's the indigenous, there's the African, there's the Spanish elements. And there's a mixture of all these different facets that we explore through the poetry of this music. And it's not just the poetry, it's the music, the actual tonalities. So there's a scene in this film where we show Rahim al-Hajj, Haj, is an oud player from Iran. And he's playing on the oud, and Fernando and Patricia de Hidalgo are playing on the harana, And you wouldn't think that they would go together, but when you hear the music, you realize they're musical cousins, because the music of Andalusia, the music of Southern Spain, those tonalities, those minor thirds, that's the kind of music that came during the Spanish colonialist days. So you have musically, we're cousins separated, not at birth, but this, this film shows that we're not just connected through the poetry and the lyrics, but also musically, we're talking the same language because we, were, we come from the same musical traditions in many cases.
2: Yes, and it, it does that beautifully. That theme is brought out beautifully in the film. Indeed, what so many people think is characteristically Spanish music is the influence of North Africa that made its way into Spain, and those minor key melodies, the strumming. Uh, it's not only extraordinary, but it brings to mind Yo-Yo Ma, and what he set out to do with the Silk Road Ensemble, showing this commonality among all of us and, and how each of us is not only enriched by one another's music, but we may contain each other's music in some form. Would you talk about how the film culminates.
3: Fandango at the Wall is very much a journey. I think many people who see the film, this will be their introduction to Son music, and I certainly hope so. And I hope that people will be enveloped by the journey as we go from Veracruz, Mexico, we, we find these master musicians to the border wall where we have incredible, an incredible performance at the San Diego-Tijuana border. And we also wanted to bring this music to where I was living at the time, our hometown of New York. So we bring, we invite the son rich artists to a wonderful performance at symphony space in New York. And there's a reason we did this at the border wall at Tijuana, San Diego. The border wall is actually made out of kind of a mesh and you can put your finger up to one of the little empty spaces, and you can just touch fingertips or pinky tips with someone on the other side. And we we started calling this the high pinky salute. So among the camera crew and everyone on the team, we would just give high pinky salutes to everyone. But we started to call this another term, which is the Fandango Doctrine, like foreign policy through art and foreign affairs through art. And so we wanted to bring the Fandango to different parts of the world. And so in New York, the film culminates in us performing a Fandango, having a great Fandango, at the symphony space. And I just want to say that I hope the film also culminates in a, in a response from the audience that there is a San Hirocho community in many, many towns across America. There's a San Hirocho community in Atlanta. There's a Mexican diaspora of San Hirocho artists around the world. If you go to Google and type in San Hirocho or Fandango in your city, you might find a community of people who put on Fandangos. And I would encourage anyone listening to go to a Fandango. You'll make a handful of new friends. <laughs> and the, a Fandango is a place where you it's a one big party. You have food, you have dancing, you have music. So I, I hope that If you're into the music, just go to a Fandango and you'll see what all the buzz is about that this, I've been in music for, I've been making music for over 20 years. And Sonorochi music is the most transformative and enveloping art form I've ever experienced. Wow.
2: When did you discover your love for Afro-Latin jazz?
3: I've always been interested in jazz music the music of Miles Davis, the music of Duke Ellington. When I was in college, Arturo O'Farrell came to be a guest performer at my university, and he said, and he, he was bringing in a lot of music that was from the Afro-Latin tradition. His father was Chico O'Farrell, one of the incredible Cuban-American arrangers of all time. And it's really through my friendship with Arturo that I have become fascinated with the music of the Americas. There's something about the syncopation of the music, you're feeling the anticipation and the off beats that makes the music feel like it envelops you. And so instead of counting one, two, three, four, one, you're counting on the end of the beats, one and two and three and four, and you're anticipating when something grooves in Afro-Latin music, Afro-Cuban music, there's nothing that quite grooves like that because everything is syncopated and everyone's playing the part. And if one person messes it up (laughs) and kind of, I'm a bass player, so you can kind of mess up everyone. So it's, it's a really beautiful art form and there's there's so many different shades of it. There's Afro-Peruvian music from Peru, Afro-Mexican music, there's um, Afro-Cuban music. And so through this music, you really hear, not just the music, but you You learn about the immigration patterns of where people came from and where they went to and and how the music played a role. So you're listening to history and you're also listening to the future by listening to this type of music.
2: Well, one glorious moment in the film is when a musician says, this wall is not dividing us, it's uniting us. And I think the portion of the film that has the Fandango Fronterizo. That concert at the wall is positively stunning. I didn't think you could outdo it, but when we get to symphony space, I mean, I I just can only imagine that people who see the film are going to stand up and cheer at the end of this. I just want to ask before we come here, in the 30s and 40s, I guess through the height of the Cold War, the U.S. State Department had jazz ambassadors. Uh, It was a type of soft diplomacy that, not surprisingly, was very effective because who can resist the likes of Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald in Russia or Cuba. And those are just two of the musicians. Do you see this project on your part in the same spirit as the jazz diplomacy?
3: I certainly hope so. I hope that this is a continuation of the role that jazz has played Over the decades, jazz has been a music of protest. It's been a music of freedom. And it's been a music that represents, I think, the best of America. And so in this way, I think that Arturo O'Farrell, Jorge Francisco Castillo coming together and performing uh, music together is an example of the way America can be. You know, it was back in the nineteen 20s and 30s that you had blacks and whites performing together jazz is one of the first parts of american civil society that was integrated so in jazz you had an image of what america could be you had an image of what america could become and in the same way the last many years the uh, diplomatic relationship between the united states and mexico has soured but when people see this film i hope they are able to imagine what U.S.-Mexico relations could be. So in this way, I hope that our film Fandango at the Wall helps create a new narrative and helps to show what U.S.-Mexico relations can become again. And music can be ahead of our times. And I hope that this film challenges people to think about their beliefs about immigration, the border wall, and realize that we're actually more alike than, than, than we're not. We're actually more alike than different. And so I'm glad you asked about that because I, I certainly hope when we, when we set out to make this project, Varda Barkar, the incredible director on this project, that was one of the goals was to see how we can focus the music on telling a story that creates positive change in the world.
2: Well, I think you succeeded beautifully. Kabir Segal, congratulations on Fandango at the Wall. It is a wonderful film, and I'm sure it will enjoy tremendous success.
3: Thank you so much, Lois. A real pleasure and an honor to be on your august show. I appreciate it.
2: Producer Kabir Segal, his documentary Fandango at the Wall will be shown tomorrow at 9.30 p.m. at the Plaza Theatre Drive-In, part of the Atlanta Film Festival. More information will be on our website, wabe.org citylights. Our stage on screen is the new digital series from Aurora Theatre, the Gwinnett-based company will open its new season with the musical Barbara's Blue Kitchen. Chloe Kay plays Barbara, as well as several other roles. She joins us now with director Justin Anderson. Welcome to City Lights.
4: Thank you, Lois. Thanks
2: for having us, Lois. Now, the first play in the new series is Barbara's Blue Kitchen. What made you decide to begin the season with this show?
0: (laughs) We certainly uh, wanted to find something that uh, had a degree of familiarity Something that that allowed, I, I think, for an easy access point into the kind of work that we're typically known for doing. And so we're serving an, an audience that has a degree of connectivity to us as it relates to musicals, for sure. Uh, but also something based on this, the time that we're in that would help to inspire and hopefully lean towards some degree of hope. Uh, and this piece in particular speaks so beautifully to the idea of, of leaning into and, and um, journeying towards wholeness, particularly as it relates to a small town. And uh, utilizing a diner as the epicenter of where that kind of work and that, uh, you know, that fabric of life is experienced is not too dissimilar from a theater and how that's rooted in a community. So uh, we knew that when we came across this piece, it actually is a piece written by Laurie Fisher who had another play that we were going to produce in in full this particular season um, when we were in a live context. So we had a familiarity with her as a writer and when we knew we ne- needed to make the pivot, this just seemed to be the right piece to kick off the series with.
2: Chloe,
4: can you tell us
2: a bit about the story?
4: Sure, so the main character is Barbara Jean who owns a little blue diner in a small town in Tennessee. And the other characters are people in her life, her sister, a nurse who works in the town, an elderly woman who lives at the retirement home across the way, all various people who she sort of uh, deals with day to day. But the story takes place on one particular day where a shift occurs for her, I think, internally. And also for some of those other characters in her life. So it's it's sort of a little slice of life story, just a day in the life of Barbara Jean, but a day that ends up being really important for her and the other people in the town.
2: Would you share some of the good gossip that audiences will overhear in the show? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, there's
4: a little there's a little romance involved. Thing about coming of age, I'm not some spring chicken just out of my cage, and I've thought a thousand times this time. Love's found me, I've turned a new page, but all those beginnings they never felt right, and those long drawn out endings well, they cut like an. It's cool because the 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 piece is at once I think lighthearted and there are definitely some comedic moments, definitely some comedic moments, um, but there's also some deeper material that's sort of tackled. There's there's a mother son relationship that's troubled that's tackled. There's the idea of what happens when we lose somebody later on in life and how to carry on there. There's the idea of following dreams. There's there's a lot that gets thrown around in the diner. And uh, I think it, it makes a lot of different stories relatable. So we have
2: a window into the lives of seven different customers at the diner and you play all seven roles. Yes. <laughs> that cannot be easy. Do all seven characters have a song?
4: They mostly do, Uh, five of the seven do, I think. So what, what
2: was it like preparing for so many different characters? And I was hoping you would tell us about preparing for all these different roles and the transformation you have to take on stage to become these different characters.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Like anything, I I consider myself very lucky in that the past few years, I feel like every project within the theater that I've been presented with has given me a new opportunity, like a new challenge to tackle. So I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't intimidated (laughs) (laughs) and sort of like oh gosh I've never done this before I wonder if I can do this but then doing it anyway and trusting in the process was just a huge part of of anything in theater but especially this piece and then what was cool about the filming process that made it a little different was that we filmed each character's track all the way through we did Barbara Jean first and we went through the whole play just filming Barbara Jean and then went back I changed and then we did the next character and then did their whole story arc then go back so I kind of got to change my mind into the character every time I changed my costume as opposed to going back and forth like you would if the play was performed live so that was a cool opportunity and, and I think was helpful for me for sure
2: <laughs> so Justin This is a very different endeavor. You are not directing a live show in real time. You have become something of a theater director and editor in this process. What's that been like? it's
0: actually been very gratifying. I, I do have experience outside of theater, and so being able to blend uh, that skill set of, of camera work or nonlinear work and and marrying that with something that is more traditionally linear from beginning to end and sort of playing through as is, uh, regardless of if there's, you know, any degree of uh, hiccup or not, um, was actually a really lovely, I don't want to say experiment. It was a, a great exercise, and and I think, because of the nature of this piece and the evolution and the metamorphosis of these characters, and with the blessing of the the playwright, we, we took that opportunity to really find the hybrid between the two, so honoring what felt very much like the live aesthetic and, and attributes of this piece, but then allowing us for some of that magical camera shifting for the full realization of these characters. Because in the, the original production and as it's been staged elsewhere across the country, um, it might have been a, you know, a shift of uh, you know, pulling your, your hair up into a ponytail or donning a pair of glasses or putting on a hat, and that was the character shift within the body of the work. So to be able to lean into something that was more fully realized with a costume shift or makeup shift or whatever the case might be, I think adds a, a degree of, of, of magic to the proceedings.
4: Mm.
2: Now, how would you describe Barbara Jean herself? This this could be for both of you.
0: Oh man, I would say uh, she she's a, a go getter. She is someone who's very forthright. She's definitely uh, a root. If you think of a a compass, she's she's more of the like the rooted tip. She's not that pencil that's moving around. I think she has a degree of of um, stalwart quality to her, which I think helps solidify her as someone who really represents the bedrock of a community and a place that allows people to intersect in ways that, that create vulnerability, create need and, and fulfillment of community without them necessarily even having to speak about
3: that.
2: And Chloe, I thought about a young Dolly Parton when I read about this play. Did you channel her or is she in mind at all?
4: definitely i think her music and and that sort of world that that it represents and lives in was definitely in mind i mean the music in the play has that great classic nashville country sound that i think just really feels like home to a lot of people and i think that works even better in the in the small town setting that the music just really gives you that sense of home. The way Dolly does, I mean, she's such a household name. So I think that it definitely lives.
2: And, and her can-do spirit and optimism.
0: And yet has her, you know, has her own foibles, right? I mean, has her own obstacles. I mean, as in particular with Barbara Jean, as you alluded to, uh, Chloe, the reason why today in this play is so different is she's met with the possibility of of love, like the love of a lifetime. And uh after having heartbreak after heartbreak, how might today be different if she chooses to step into that unknown?
2: Atlanta actor Skylar Brown plays the role of the local radio music TJ Brian Hall and he also doubles as the guitarist for this show. What else can you tell us about the music in the production
4: absolutely well there's definitely the like i said that classic nashville country through line Um, the music also kind of varies depending on what's being spoken about so there's a great character who has this um sort of foreboding bluesy number um there's a child who sings and has a very whimsical childlike song that that's you know very big and expansive it's not all you know tried and true country music but still kind of holds to that through line
0: yeah, very much lives in that sense of storytelling. Um, I think that's what we would often attribute to, to country music is uh, really encapsulating a, a fullness of a story in a short amount of time, often you know, dealing with, with hard or difficult things, not to say that there isn't celebration that weaves its way in and out, but it's, it's often obstacles that provide those moments of needing to wrestle with uh, heart issues or uh, you know, moments of the soul or whatever the case might be.
2: The heart of this play addresses the power of community, something especially important now. Justin, how has the pandemic influenced the way that you present the play and the way in which you think it will be received?
0: Well, certainly, just in the in the literal aspect of needing to make a pivot uh, for for accessibility purposes, uh, we've we've made that shift towards the the digital format with this. And, and honestly, it's it's coming not only from a place of of the wanting and the longing to create work and and to continue to lean into the stories of us as a community, to find touchstone moments and you know intersection points, but um, the 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 sheer desire to to let people know that we're still there and that we're still um, we still care about uh, the stories of our community um, in tandem with things that are going on in light of uh, the incredible social unrest that's that's been unraveling this this past summer so finding opportunities to not only uh, do the internal work of making sure that we're we're centering stories um, that that provide inclusivity and, and a tremendous and great sense of, of, of authentic belonging, but also making sure that we are, are retaining the pulse of a community that, um, that desperately needs connection.
2: Justin Anderson, Chloe Kay, thank you so very much. And best of luck with the beginning of your exciting new season.
0: Thank you so much, Lois.
4: Thank you so much.
2: Actor Chloe Kay and director Justin Anderson, Aurora Theatre's production of Barbara's Blue Kitchen will be available to stream this Friday. For more on how to view the play, do check our website at wabe.org citylights City Lights. There are numerous picture books with stories for young children reassuring them that they are not alone. Many of the stories are told by the mother rather than from a father's point of view. Daryl Farley is an Atlanta educator who tells his children's story from the dad's perspective. He joined me during the summer and talked about how one night in particular inspired him to write, I will be here.
1: Well, I had just finished reading my son uh, children's book. I always read him a bedtime story. It's kind of one of our favorite bonding moments that we have with each other. And um, after I read it, it just kind of hit me that there weren't many books speaking from a uh, father's perspective and mainly from a Black father's perspective. It hit me and I was like, maybe I should write him a book, you know, just from my perspective to him. Then I told my wife and she told me, you know, maybe you should publish a book for them.
2: And that led to, I will be here.
1: Correct, something that I've always wanted to tell my sons, I guess just from me not having a father figure when I was younger, So it's kind of something that I always wanted to just let my kids know that I will always be here for them, just speaking from the heart. And the book kind of goes through different milestones that I felt like I missed out on with my father and that I wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure that I was there for them.
2: It's a very sweet story. Can you give us just an overview of the plot, the gist of the story?
1: So it starts off with me talking to my wife's uh, belly with my first son in her um, stomach, and just letting them know that I'll always be here because I know the importance of black fathers in their children's lives. And it goes on a journey from when he's born until he's, you know, reaches different uh, milestones during school and uh, college, his career, and when he, you know, even when he starts his own family, I'm always there with him, including my wife as he has his kids, making sure he did the same thing that I am doing for him, just talking to his kids and just being in their lives.
2: You mentioned that your father wasn't around for much of your youth. Would you say that absence of a relationship with your dad influenced the creation of this book?
1: Uh, yes, heavily. A lot of the things that I wanted from him is kind of the... I always say he he made me the father that I I am today because of the things that I wanted and that I didn't uh, receive. So I know when I became a father that those are the things that I wanted to give and instill into my kids.
2: I wondered here, is this book as much a story that seeks to complete what a child in a single parent household is experiencing? As it is, racial.
1: Yes, for both. That's what a lot of my uh, reviews that I got back from writing the story was, you know, it's from a black father's uh, perspective, but it's all from also from a single parent home, just from the father just being there, even if the parents are not together, just making sure that they have a, a relationship, so the child will feel, you know, the the love from both parents. <laughs>
2: Let's talk about the illustrations. They're lovely. How did you find the artist who painted them?
1: Well, when I put it out on Twitter that I wanted to write a book from a Black perspective, a high school friend of mine, she introduced me to uh, um, the illustrator, Jessica Jones. And um, just talking to her, I I gave her my story and just hearing her ideas, I knew she would be the right person just seeing different some of her illustration from her previous work, I knew she would be the perfect person.
2: I imagine you have read the book to your own children. What has been their response?
1: My four-year-old son, he um, smiled. He was just excited to see himself in a book. He just kept wanting to go back to the uh, one of the first pages where I'm holding my youngest son, and he's next to me. And as I read it to him, the, you can see the, in the illustrations uh, Children, the boys are a resemblance of my son. So he kept asking, "Is that me? Is that me?" <laughs> and I was letting him know, "Yes." And uh, he he kind of got a little uh, nervous. I know he's four, but it was when he's uh, married and when he starts a family. And he said, "I, I have a son." And I- <laughs> 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 yes, <laughs> you know, hopefully. So it was just. I know he's young to uh, kind of understand, but he uh, he just enjoyed it. He loves to look at the book and he uh, tells you know people that come and by our house that that's my book. That's that's my book. That you know.
2: Look, I'm famous and I'm only four.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: How about your older son?
1: He's my oldest, my four year old, and uh, I have a six month old. Oh my. Well, I don't
2: know if he is able to comment on the book yet, but I that he responds to being told a story and being held close in your lap and looking at pictures.
1: <laughs> yes. I just want I also wanted to something for them to give to their kids, you know, when they were when they start a family to look my dad wrote this book, you know, when I was young and maybe encourage them to write something for their kids.
2: Daryl Farley is the author of I will be here. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, we'll hear about the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more... Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
3: Have you
0: donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit WABE.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.